0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the book of Psalm. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news, Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure that they will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One, two, one, two? All right, we're good. Good morning. Uh, my name is Cheech. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to preach God's Word to you. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, a favor because Justin Adore, Pastor Justin, is not here. Uh, preaching, he's preaching out a retreat. I think this is a good opportunity to take just 30 seconds to pray for your pastor, for your brother, for your friend, for your leader, because it's a very thankless job. And while he's not here, I think it's appropriate to pray for him. So just give 30 seconds in silence, personal prayer to pray for our brother. We're gonna jump into the, uh, the word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and faithfulness. And as we sang, you are the one that's on the throne. In good times or bad, you are on the throne. I don't know what my brothers and sisters are going through, I don't know what they're bringing here this morning, but I pray and ask that you would meet us, that we would have an encounter with the living Jesus Christ, the Lord, our Savior. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So my mom has owned a grocery store in East Flatbush. East Flatbush is a neighborhood that is very similar to actually East Harlem, and it's a low-income neighborhood, very Caribbean, ethnic, West Indy neighborhood, and she still owns it to this day, almost 40 years. And this store, working there, living there, has formed me to be a kind of person And what I've seen with my mom is that she treats people differently than the world or that I would treat people and the world. And in particular, there are these moments where towards the second half of the month, people are shopping and they would pack up their groceries, they would bring the groceries to the counter, she would count it up, she would bag it up, and then she would ask for payment. And typically in in our neighborhood, people are using EBT cards, which are modern day uh, food stamps. But what happens is that towards the second half of the month, people run out of money. In New York City, EBT cards are refilled typically in the first nine to 15 days. And so after bagging all the food up, they would then have to go through the shame of being declined because they don't have enough money in their cards. And so my mom has to make a split second decision of what to do. Do I shame them more or do I let them eat food? Do they go home with the groceries to cook for their family, or is she gonna say no? Now I've seen both of those scenarios play out, but most often I've seen my mom let them go, telling them when the money refills, come back and pay your due. And this has formed me to be a kind of person that wants to be like my mother and the way she relates with money and her community and her business. So Pastor Justin obviously left uh, me to talk about money because he doesn't want to. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about. We're talking about money this morning. If you're getting a little nervous, so am I as the preacher. It's never easy for the preacher to talk about money. It's never um, so easy for you to hear about money because it's uh, hard stuff. It's hard stuff especially for us here in New York City because cash is king. Money is king. But realize this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way we could use money appropriately and not money using us. So you've been in a sermon series called Living Inside Out where you've been looking at various psalms, and on one hand you are looking at the character of God, and on the other hand you're looking at the call of the Christian. Today we're looking at Psalm 112 together, if you fall asleep, which... You're probably not supposed to because you got an extra hour. I just want to give the whole sermon to you in this one line. Delighting in the grace of God leads us to the discipline of generosity. Delighting in the grace of God leads us to the discipline of generosity. We're gonna look at this in three ways. First is the disappointment of money. Second is delighting in the greatest gift. And third, the discipline to give freely. So come with me, let's look at the disappointment of money. Look, first of all, let me say up front from the get-go that money in of itself is a resource. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just a thing. We cannot live without it, we have to live with it, but money is neutral. It's not good, it's not bad, it's not immoral, it's not moral. But what money can do and what money actually does is that it takes over the human heart and that is what is so dangerous about money. The Bible says that it is the love of money which is the root of all sorts of evil. You get that, right? The love of money. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of it. One theologian, Richard Foster, said, behind money are very spiritual forces that energize it and give it a life of its own. Hence, money is an active agent, meaning it's alive. It is a law unto itself, and it is capable of inspiring devotion. In other words, the challenge with money is that our hearts are naturally bent and inclined to make it a god, to make it king. What happens is that we ascribe ultimate worth and ultimate value to money, and therefore we derive our ultimate worth and value from that. But the question is why? Why do we give it so much value? Why do we give it so much importance in our lives? And so for that, I think we gotta dig a little bit deeper. I think it's king in New York City because there are at least four big buckets that money helps us to achieve. Power, acceptance, control, comfort. Power, acceptance, control, comfort. Look at this, money promises us potential power. How? It can get us stuff. We can exchange it. It's fungible, right? People treat us differently when we have money. The way we dress can actually impress and dictate the way a conversation goes with that person or the next person. If you're looking to try to grow your business or you have a startup, right, you need money. You might be looking for power through money. Is this what motivates you? I'm not saying it's bad or good. But money also promises us potential acceptance how with money we become more attractive to others it gets us attention it gives us a name it gives us presence there's this guy on social media on instagram going around asking uh, women on the street would you date a guy if he makes less than 100k a year and what do we think most of these women are saying no and if it was flipped it would be the same answer too if it if it was a guy being asked if a woman makes less than 100K, I think it would be the same answer. No. Money can gain us acceptance, and it could cure our loneliness. But that money also promises us the potential of control. How? We get to touch it. We get to see it. We we can smell it. We shouldn't smell it because it's so dirty, but we can even smell it. It gives us a sense of mobility. It gives us opportunity. It gives us options in life. I think this is what's really important about this idea or the potential of control through money is that it allows us to be independent from other people. In our Western society, we, we just don't want to rely on our family. We don't want to rely on our friends. Money gives us the opportunity to be independent and free from other people. And so if you have young children, having money helps take care of unforeseen circumstances and situations and expenses, and it keeps you in control. Maybe that's what motivates you. Lastly, money promises us the potential of acquiring uh, security or comfort, and I think many of us fall into this category. How many of us wake up in the morning and open up our phones, and after turning off the alarm, check our online bank accounts? Or in the middle of our workday, on a break, when we're on the toilet, just going on our Chase and Bank of America apps? You know, the reality is is that the money, the balance, doesn't really change that much. The money doesn't change, and yet, when we look at it, it gives us this sense of security. It's like a security blanket, it's an emotional support, and so we have to check it. I hope you realize that this is uh, us being formed in a kind of way, we are seeking security and comfort through money. Is this you? Money is actually the means, it's the method, it's the vehicle as to get one or all four of these things, power, acceptance, control, or comfort. These four things are the, uh, what we call idols, deeper idols underneath the money. And while money promises these things, I don't think it always delivers. I think we've all experienced that in our lives. That although money promises that it'll give us these things, it doesn't show up all the time. When I was in college, I participated in a homeless outreach called Yacht. It stands for Youth Against Complacency and Homelessness Today. Uh, we packed up food from our college campuses. We drove vans down with full of people into Center City, Philly, to Love Park, where the famous love sign is, and we would hand out food, meet with those experiencing homelessness, asking people their story, and praying for them if uh, they allowed us to, if they wished. And I remember this one man, and it's probably the most formative conversation I had, and um, with, the homeless, with someone experiencing homelessness to this day, and I regret not remembering his name. But I asked him his story. He was all raggedy, he was all grimy, he was smelly. He looked like a typical New York homeless person. Asked the story, he said, I have two PhDs. I'm a professor, I was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League School. I have everything, I had everything I ever wanted. And I asked him, how'd you end up on the streets? He said, his house burned down. All of his documents, all of his identification, all of his credentials, his computer, his laptop, his work, all of it was burned up. All the money that he had in cash under the bed burned up. Then on top of that, his mother died and was burned up in the fire. And so that's how we ended up on the street. The money he saved up that was in the bank, he used it for the funeral and he never bounced back. This guy is elite. I think he sounds very close to many of us. If not, he's better in in the eyes of the world. And who says that this couldn't happen to any one of us? I'm not wishing that this would happen to any one of us, but what if it does? We have no control over that. What if another 08 financial crisis happens? I think we would, a lot of people in this room would be affected, heavily. There's another man, I do know his name, his name is Job. He's in the Old Testament, and I think many of you are familiar with this guy named Job, but he also had everything. He had money, he had property, he had a big old family, Uh, the community loved him, he was well liked, he's accepted, he has power, he has influence. And then over the span of seconds, days, all of that is stripped away from him. Kids are killed. His property is taken. His livestock is taken and stripped away. He is uh, diseased. He is ill. He's going through deep depression and suffering. But then the reactions from his wife, if you know the story, his wife and his three friends are so different from his own reaction because they wanted him to curse God. And what does that say? In a way, you can say that for his wife and the three friends, the stuff was Lord over God. And yet Job, sitting in silence, I think what he was trying to say is that God was Lord over the stuff. In other words, friends, the love of money needs to be replaced and rooted out in our hearts with a greater love. Secondly, let's look at the delight of the best gift. Look with me if you have your Bibles to Psalm 112. I'm going to read verses 6 and 8. And I would say, look at your Bibles, because then you know that I'm not lying. And it's also on the screen. Verse 6. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph over on their foes. The psalmist is saying that those who walk humbly with God and fear God are blessed. How? Well, he gives us our heart's desires and meets all of our fears. I don't know if you see this. I'm going to break this down for us. Look at verse 6. The righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. What is that? It's our deep longing for acceptance. Verse 7. They will have no fear of bad news. What's he talking about? Control. Not that we get full control, but we don't have to fear of losing or not having control in our life because God's got us. Verse 8, their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. A life with God is true security and comfort in this life, and therefore it frees us from constantly checking our bank accounts. Verse 8, in the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. This is true power. If you're looking for power, true power exists only In God, where evil and death doesn't have the last word. Power, acceptance, control, comfort. These are the things that money promises us but doesn't deliver, but it is offered to us fully in God and a life with God. But look at this. To understand Psalm 112, we have to back it up. So we're going to look at Psalm 111. It's not going to show up on the screen. But Psalm 111, hear this, four through five. It actually complements 112. He has caused his wonders to be remembered The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. Before we get to the call and the discipline of the Christian, we have to look at the character of God Himself. That's what Psalm 111 is all about. The psalm, is this talk, he's talking about how God has provided for his people, how he has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, from Pharaoh. When they were in the wilderness and in the exodus, he was giving manna from the sky, and he gave water from the rock so that they would not starve and they would not thirst. And in a similar way, Redeemer East Harlem, God and he, what he is doing is saving us from the Lord and the King of money. Why? Because we are his children and because he loves us dearly. How does he do that? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 8 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might know his riches. Jesus came from heaven to earth. In other words, he gave up his control. He was born as a baby into Poverty. In other words, he gave up his power. He was born in a manger where animals eat from. Jesus gave up his great comfort. He was born in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of East Harlem? Jesus gave up his acceptance. He gave up the riches of his glory in heaven and with the Godhead. And he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich and experience the fullness of his grace. He gave it all up and he lived the life we should have lived, the life where God is Lord over us instead of money being Lord over us. He died the death that we should have died on the cross, broken, bruised, battered, scorned, mocked, abused, ashamed, vulnerable, without any security or comfort. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. But get this, he rose from the dead so that the world might know that there is great hope for all. And that means for whether you are presently poor or presently rich, Jesus is for you. Because a life that worships money will not satisfy, but a life with God and a life in Christ is fully satisfying, is full and abundant. What does this mean? It means that Jesus loves you way more then money will ever love you. Turn to him. Trust in him. Depend on him. Delight in him. The World Happiness Report in 2018 found that per capita income has doubled ever since 1972, while happiness, happiness has been unchanged or slightly declined. In other words, let me break it down. The more money you have doesn't mean that we are more happy. Actually, it's the opposite. The more money we have, we've doubled As a society, and yet our happiness has stayed the same or decreased. Why? Because money will use you even though you think you are using it. Money will use you even though you think you are using it. And that's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and despise the other, or you will be devoted to the one. And, sir, and, and despise the other. Redeemer, East Harlem, we need to pause here for just a moment. We sang just a few minutes ago. I think it was the second song that we sang together. In good times and bad, you are on the throne. Is that real? Is that true? On the throne in my heart, is Jesus kneeling at the dollar's feet or is the dollar kneeling at Jesus' feet. Take, take 10 seconds to reflect on that. The last thing Christianity and the church, capital C, must do regarding money is guilt people into giving. I hope you see from Psalm 111 the character of God. He is a generous, gracious, compassionate, loving God, so much to the point that He would give His one and only beloved Son so that we might experience true richness and wealth in Him. There is no guilt into giving here. We are giving graciously because we have first received His grace. So lastly, let's look at the discipline to give freely. So Psalm 112 and 111 are Hebrew acrostic poems, and what that means is that um, all the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are, are make up the poem and the lines. And so if you put 111 and 112 next to each other, you can see that the verses actually match. Again, 111, the character of God, and then 112 is the call of the Christian. So look at 112, verses 4 through 5 with me. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, talking about us, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. In 111, God is compassionate and gracious. In 112, he is calling us to be compassionate and gracious. In 111, God gives food and water to his people. And then in 112, we are to give generously and freely and justly. I want to read a story from the late uh, late Claude Noel from Haiti. Um, I think that when we think about poverty here in America, we don't really know uh, what poverty is like in some other parts of the world. I've had the privilege to go to Haiti nine summers in my life. Think about the worst poverty you've seen and experienced, times that by ten, and it comes somewhere close to what Haiti experiences today, and it's only getting worse, actually. So keep that in mind as I read this. Recently, I was walking through the streets of a city in Europe, contemplating the beautiful multi-story buildings and the comfortable homes spread all over. I turned to my wife and said, I can more or less understand what my father meant when in his moments of despair in Haiti, he used to say, God is a good provider, but but not a good divider. God is a good provider, but a poor and not good divider. He goes on to say, my father was a hardworking man, very resourceful, but we lived on the edge of starvation. He had come to realize, like many other people in my land, that it is not hard work that determines whether or not a man will feed his family. Most of the time, he fights in vain against ferocious, natural elements responsible for his misery. It's in the Caribbean, Hispaniola, so there's a lot of hurricanes. He cannot talk aloud about the human and social elements, so he blames it on God. My father couldn't understand why some unworthy men have more than they need, while some quite worthy workers barely survive. Here it is. In my middle age, I am just coming to discover my father's saying should be turned around. God provides and leaves it for men to share with each other, but they do not care to do so. But they do not care to do so. John Perkins is a pastor. He is maybe the father of community development. He says that we need to get busy with the business of redistribution in our communities. Let's get very practical right now. There are three disciplines that you can engage in. Pick one or pick three. You probably are involved with at least two of these already at this church. First is this. Some of you have a family or friend that has come to you in a financial crisis in a pickle and they've asked you for some money. If you're Korean, you probably already have lent out a lot of money to some family members. What would it look like for the next person that comes to you or the person that comes to you or has already come to you if you didn't attach a loan to it? If you just gave them what they needed or you've been waiting years and years to get that payment back, would you be able to forgive them? In Leviticus, in the Old Testament, there's this principle, this practice called the Shemitah, right? Every seven years, the land, the harvest land gets rest. But also, the people that are in debt get forgiven. What might it look like for the people in your life to be forgiven of their debt? This is the practice of personal generosity and justice. Secondly, I want to offer to you also in the Old Testament, there's the practice and principle of gleaning. And that that means that for those that were farmers and in agriculture, most of them in that time and climate, that's what they were doing. They were to leave the outskirts of the farm and the land for sojourners, for people passing through, for the aliens, for the strangers, so that as they are traveling, that they would have food to eat and not starve to death. East Harlem, you're already doing this, right? You're already doing this with the community closet. Let me push you one step further. Don't give your leftovers. Give the clothes that you would actually wear. Give the food that you would actually eat for the migrants for East Harlem. This is the practice of communal generosity and justice. And lastly, offer and tithe your gifts to this church or to other churches. There are so many local churches here that need your money and resources as well. Other organizations that are doing good work. Other missionaries and pastors, please Uh, donate and give and support these people. The heart behind offering and tithing, I already saw it on the screen before uh, the sermon. You already have the principles there, G-I-V-E. So read that over, talk about this with your pastors and and with your leaders so that you could give uh, generously and justly. So whether you engage in one or all three of these practices and disciplines, I just wanna say just start. If you've already started, keep pressing in. It should be a little bit uncomfortable every single year. Maybe give a little bit more. Maybe think about it a little bit more. Pray about your money and your dollar just a little bit more. Ask the people in your life, uh, where can I give? How can I support you? Where do you need help? Do you need to be forgiven? In his book, Generous Justice, I'm going to end with this. Tim Keller wrote this. If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. Justice follows justification, for when the Spirit enables us to understand what Christ has done for us, the result is a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion for the poor. The Christian's response to grace offered in the cross of Jesus Christ is one of, both, one of justice both in thought and deed. Let us give generously and justly, because that is what God has done for us on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, a tough word. Nobody wants to talk about money. We don't want to think about money. We want to hoard it. We want to overspend it. We want to invest it for ourselves. And yet the money that you've given to us, each and every one of us, is so that it might be used appropriately and justly and freely. So, Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? Help us, Lord, to see in which ways we need to practice our giving. Practice our pouring out. Practice this gracious generosity and just generosity for our community and for our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.